Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's time to get up in the morning. You guys look good this morning. Thank you. I feel good. Like I knew that I would. We just gonna listen to the music? I mean, we can. I love the music. That's a good song. We just listened to music this morning, Tim. What do you think? Okay. He says, okay. Some morning we're going to play some really loud Christian EDM music for you on this. And it's not because I like EDM. And if you don't know what EDM is, it's it's electronic dance music. I'm like, I actually don't even know what it is. <laughs> Loretta is a closet EDM fan, I think. She's our, one of our sound techs. <laughs> So, yeah, but what that means is that there's a whole lot of bass and a lot of thumping in it, and this place is pretty fun with, with the new sound system, i got to say. Um, so, good morning, and welcome again. My name is Jamie. I'm the co-pastor here at Pullman Foursquare. Really, I, I was talking with Heidi this morning, my wife, who led the announcements and stuff, and I said, you know what? We, she, said, she asked me on Tuesday, what can I do to make this week easier for you? Because we had to do this whole sound system switch over and all the conference stuff. I should have said, would you preach on Sunday? Because <laughs> So this is going to be a hot mess. That's all I'm saying. We're going to share the stage this morning with uh, Tim Johansson, who was here as our guest speaker. Before I do that, I want to say thank you to a few people who made this weekend happen, and, and primarily my wife Heidi, who led our entire conference crew and team. She pulled the leadership team together. It was her brainchild. It was her whole – she put so much into it and did a fabulous job. So if you were here at all, let's just give her a hand this morning. The Lord pulled out skills from Heidi that she didn't know she had, and then there were some skills that he was trying to pull out. She's like, I don't have those skills. And then he like, brought people alongside, and we worked together, and it was, it was, it was brilliant. He just did a fabulous job. I was really proud of you. And uh, to our whole leadership team, thank you guys for supporting us. Janice, um, I was trying to micromanage the food. She says, hey, you gave me the food. I got it. And, <laughs> and she did, and it was so good. Um, but the f- conference was really awesome. If you were not with us, how many of you were with us? Let's raise your hands around the room. Yeah. So most of you guys know the story, and you're just going to hear a repeat here. But during our morning session, the sewer exploded. I mean, we were literally on the backspace back there all talking. We had our first break. And then Casey's running around in the back panicking. And you know, everybody's like, what's going on? And they're pulling me. And they're like, the, literally, the sewer is just coming out of all the toilets. And it was really bad. Um, and we had to call Roto-Rooter. And $1,000 later, note to self, $1,000 Roto-Rooter bill this month, um, they fixed it. And so in the evening service, they're sitting there. I mean, literally, for the evening service, they were still working snakes down toilets as we're in the back praying and worshiping. And we began to worship. And we sang. I sing this song, and it just has this line, and it says, overflow in this place. <laughs> Fill our hearts with your love, right? Not with our toilet running overs. And it was really funny, because it was this, like, holy moment. And then we get to that line, and people are snickering. <laughs> so it gives you some sense of the maturity level of the leaders of this church, folks. Just saying. All right. So uh, we are going to, to have this morning Dr. Tim Johansson come and join me up on stage. Uh, Dr. J is what his uh, title is down. He works at the enemy, the University of Arizona. Yes. 
you know, every university that's not WSU is the enemy, right? I mean, it's just, but you know what? I've learned that Jesus loves even the Huskies. He does. Even the Huskies. And so the University of Arizona is at least three or four better than that. So if Jesus loves the Huskies, he desperately loves the Wildcats. And uh, so we're going to be kind and respectful as he shares with us this morning. And uh, how many of you, are, your brains are still full from yesterday? Yes. Well, we're going to take what we talked about yesterday. We're going to tweak it just a little bit. Um, and as Tim comes up, come on up, Tim. Um, let's give him a hand. So we basically, we started this with a parenting conference. And uh, I realized at some point that we're a church uh, made up of young people that don't necessarily have children. And many of you are not married. And many of you don't even have prospects at the moment. You're looking at the person next to you thinking, is that part of the problem? I don't, you know. And it's okay. It's okay. And some of you are looking at the person next to you and you're like, I'm sitting in a seat by myself, Elijah. Um, That's okay, too. So why does parenting matter to you? And I was like, oh my gosh, why does parenting matter to you? Why would parenting matter to Aiden? Why would, why would it matter to my son Isaac? Although he was like, oh no, we're having a parenting conference. Now what are you going to do to me? <laughs> and uh, so we're working on it. Uh, I began to think about that and I thought, you know what? Parenting matters to all of us for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, the kids in this room and upstairs, they're the ones that we're going to be electing president in a few years. They're the ones that are going to be leading our businesses. They're going to be leading our our doctor's offices and practices. They're going to be our contractors. And I don't know about you, but I've dealt with some people who weren't ready for life in those places. And they were not very nice, not very kind. They didn't know how to deal with failure and things like that. So we want our next generation of kids, all of us want this. We want the next generation of kids to be better than the last. We want some awesome life-ready people out there leading our world. So it matters. That's just for all of us. Now, on a Christian level, though, it matters a lot because in the big story of the Bible, and you're about to go, oh, he's about to talk in Genesis, right? The big story of the Bible, one of the primary things that God says, one of the primary metaphors he uses to describe our relationship is the father and child. It's the parenting metaphor. So all the way into Genesis chapter 1, we have the father and his children in the garden. And all the way through the story, he is constantly trying to discipline and correct and to draw and to love on his children. And we come to, to the book of Matthew and we see Jesus telling the parable of the prodigal son, who is really just, he's just telling the whole story of the Bible again. The, it's in the, living in this great house together, a father and his kids, and it's a wonderful story and life is great. But one of them decides to go off the rails. Never happens, right? Kids never go off the rails. Goes off the rails, runs away, takes his, takes his inheritance, blows it on everything that is not good for him. He was not ready for life. And then the father waits patiently for his child to return. And a lot of us get a wrong idea, I think, of parenting because we've had parents that have messed up. And so when we think about God, we transfer our parents' thoughts, our parents' actions to God. And so if we don't get, as a community of believers— a correct idea of what good parenting looks like, we're going to misunderstand God. And on top of all of that, you are also called to be a spiritual father or mother to somebody. Even if you are single, one of our, one of Heidi and I's, uh, our mentors by book is Henry Nowen, and he was a Catholic monk, and he was called the celibacy. He never had children, and yet he is a spiritual father to us. And we learn from him. And you can be a spiritual father or mother as well. So those are the reasons that this is really, really important to us. 
um, and I've introduced you, and I've just chatted. So basically what's going to happen is we're going to try to have a conversation, and we're going to come to this middle place. It's not going to be fabulous, but it's also not going to stink. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. It's going to be oh. normal. Right. <laughs> average. Actually. Average. Can be completely average. If we're you were with us yesterday. We're just going to talk, and you're going to just watch. <laughs> That's essentially what it so is. So far, it's been me talking yeah. and you watching. Oh, so, okay. yeah. <laughs> Um, I tend to talk a lot, so I'm going to stop talking. I, could you? So he wrote a book with a, a friend of his. And I'm just going to ask him to tell us a little bit about the book. So if you weren't here, you have some context for what this is about. So did you tell us a little bit about how the book came about and who you are and just talk for a while? All right. Um. And I'll interrupt <laughs> eventually when I want to say something. Okay. Are you done? Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so what I was going to say yeah, is... Okay. <laughs> So my name is Tim, and I am a, a, a professor of pediatrics at the University of Arizona, and I get the honor and privilege of teaching 70 pediatric residents how to become baby doctors, and uh, it is a joy. Uh, my, my passion for that is really to teach them how to coach parents, especially when their kids aren't thriving, and my research interest has to do with adverse childhood experiences. Um, I wrote a book with a gentleman by the name of Michael Anderson, who is a psychologist in Minnesota, uh, brilliant man, kind of one of those natural parent people, just kind of knows what to say at exactly the right time what, with whatever that kid is dealing with. And he's counseled parents and their kids for over 35 years. And so we decided to put our, our heads together, him bringing in the psychological aspect of parenting, and I brought in the behavioral and developmental. And so we tried to meld those together in this book. Um, we really wanted a book that wasn't a how-to book. Uh, and we tried to write it in a way that would be a how-to-think-different book about parenting. So a lot of the concepts that we impact yesterday morning are really kind of antithetical. It goes against the grain of what a lot of people think about parenting. And that's one of our jobs is to make it uncomfortable. Yeah, we, we were talking with the several parents last night. I was like, this is not natural. And even with some young adults, it's like this behavior isn't natural. It's, mm -hmm. It seems to be entirely backwards uh, for all of us, but yet... Ephesians calls us to grow up in all things mm. to God who is the head and to Jesus. And so um, it's been important for us to, to dig into these things. Um, as we talked and as we listened yesterday and as I read the book, one of the things that I noticed about the principles that you guys lay out, and we're going to talk about a few of those, is that it doesn't actually necessarily have to do with parenting. Mm. It's more about being life ready. That's so correct. I, again, I felt as I read it, I was like, I'm 43 years old. Don't tell anybody. And I didn't feel life ready. <laughs> I was like, there are things in this book that I was not given. Yeah. And I felt like for all of us, that's where we're at. And then I realized, like, oh, this has to do with being a follower of Jesus, too. Mm -hmm. um, so we can talk. I mean, the book is a, is a non-Christian book, quote, unquote, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it doesn't explicitly talk about God. And yet I felt like I was being discipled by it. Mm -hmm. Um, so as we move into those things, yeah, would you say something about that? Yeah, I think one of the things about being life ready is really it reflects on Proverbs 22.6, which says, train up your child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. It, it really speaks to the issue of your uh, getting your kid to be life ready is really about preparation. And your primary job as a parent is to train up your kids. That's the job as a parent. And everything you do should be through that lens of my goal for my child is that they will mature and be ready for life. Now, no one's completely ready for life at 18. Uh, or 43. I mean, or 43 or 58. I mean, there's things that I still am learning about life that uh, I'm not a mature person yet, and it's all a process. And 
uh, a work in progress, as we say. Um, so I, I really tell parents that you know your job isn't to make your kid happy. Your job isn't to like nurture them or affirm them all the time or uh, feed them what they want uh, or uh, you know always give them grace or whatever. It, it's all those things are important. The most important thing is to look at parenting through that lens of how can I get my kid from zero to 18 and be ready to function in life, maybe not perfectly, but uh, being ready to handle most of life problems. And that transfers to children as well, because we think about what parents do toward kids. But as kids are growing, um, they're they got to be thinking about their life. My goal isn't to get, okay, parents, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this, but your child's goal isn't to get good grades, right? but it's to be ready for life. And learn to learn. And learn to learn, and right. to love to learn, right. I hope. I just got, I don't know where I'm going now. Okay. I, I love to learn more now than I did when I was a kid, but um, I think that's the way it is for a lot of people. Yeah, it's true. So one of the things that we talked about um, yesterday was this checklist to adulthood. And uh, it's kind of funny because when you think, I love checklists, I don't know about you guys, but just check, 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 and get them done, and you feel like, yeah, it's done, I'm ready to go. Um, the, Tim presented a checklist to adulthood, and there were some things on that list that I certainly didn't check before I hit adulthood, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of us don't. And would you just tell us a little bit more about that? It is very counterintuitive. It uh, is. The things, because it's not like, you know, own a car. It's yep. different than that. <laughs> yeah, when Mike and I were writing that particular chapter, we really kind of reflected on the books that might be out there, like all the vacation spots you need to visit in your life, uh, or all the great places you need to actually see, like the seven wonders of the world or whatever. Um, and we said to each other, well, there's this checklist that kids need to go through before they're going to be ready for life. And um, some of those things are really fun. Some of those things uh, really produce a lot of joy. Some of those things are really hard. Some of those things produce a lot of sadness. But it's all these good and bad and fun and different experiences that ultimately uh, mold that child into being more ready for life or not. And our point of this chapter is parents do not interfere with them experiencing these things. Don't try to protect them from something that might be difficult. So the checklist for a particular child might be getting a puppy. Who, who remembers getting their first puppy? I mean, that's just like, remember that? You bring this little, pu- and then the puppy breath kind of thing, you know? Um, or or uh, another one might be having the best Christmas ever. One might be planting a tree with your parents when you're four years old, and then by the time you're graduating, the thing's 40 feet tall, and you go back and go, I planted that tree. So that is a life experience that is on a lot of people's checklists. But there's also things that are on the checklist that you might think are a bit counterintuitive, like not making the varsity soccer team, not getting invited to your best friend's birthday party, studying really hard for a test and getting a C-. So those things are really important as well for kids to experience because it molds their character, gives them resilience, and gives them maturity. Yeah, and I've met college students who run with a lot of anxiety because of the, the concern about getting a C on a test. And mm-hmm. I mean, we all want to do our best, mm-hmm. and yet it's the overwhelming need to perform well right. um, that drives that anxiety in us. And I, I even remember as a, a young adult, you, you said this yesterday, that some people come to the end of their high school career or the end of their college career, and they're like, I'm not ready for adulthood. And I mm-hmm. remember feeling that. I remember thinking, I'm 21 years old, and I'm not married yet. That's it. It's over. I'm never going to get married. Mm-hmm. And uh, then about seven, eight months later, I was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And that sent my faith into a tailspin because 
life isn't supposed to be hard. Right. You know, I'm not supposed to encounter this. I'm not supposed to be alone, and I'm not supposed to experience pain. And those are two messages that are not in the Bible anywhere. In fact, Jesus says, in this life, you will have many troubles. (laughs) You know, this is going to happen because this is this life. You will have trouble. But Jesus has overcome those things so we can rest in him. We can have our peace in him. But we still walk through them. Yes. Yeah, life is hard, and that's that's the nature of life. And for people who grow up not understanding that and not accepting that and not embracing the fact that sometimes life's going to be really hard, will just live life um, kind of with unmet expectations. And they will be disappointed uh, all the time. And it doesn't do a child well to grow up thinking that the pr- a problem-free life is the goal or even an option because it's not. It is what it is. We live in a broken world. Uh, it is, the, f- the fall happened, and we are still suffering through the consequences of that. And someday it will be all new, which is a great, you know, many times I'm thinking, roll back those clouds, do it right now. Um, but obviously that's God's timing, not mine. Um, but anyways, the, the thinking that you will have a problem-free life is really not a good thing for a kid to, to believe in. Or for a Christian. I mean, mm-hmm. when I accepted Jesus, it was all made right, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Life was going to be easy after that, right? Uh, nope. No. That's not, uh, but that's the line I was fed, and I don't, many of you may have or bought into that, but that's just not the case. Life is hard. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. How, are, how uplifted are you this morning now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel good. All right. But that's not bad news. That's just the way life is. It is. So either we say to ourselves, I'm going to understand that in the context of my life, or I'm going to fight that. Keep fighting if that's the, the approach that you want. It's going to be a, a difficult d- existence for you. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the idea that yesterday that a small percentage of people are exceptional. Um, we live in a town full of professors. Mm. Um, the, the proportional amount of large brains in our city is exponentially off, off different. Off the charts. Yeah, especially compared to Tucson. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> ouch. They're laughing, but you know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see, Rob, I see your brain <laughs> pulsate sometimes. Um, anyway, so we have this idea that, that we're exceptional, and in our schools, kids are driven to exceptional. Uh, to they're, they're, they're treated as though they're exceptional. We had a parent-teacher conference with our, our second-grade teacher this week, and she's like, oh, your daughter's struggling in this area. And then she's, like, really cautious, and we're both like, okay. And she's like... But it's going to be okay. It's really going to be okay. And we're like, mm-hmm. yeah, we know it's going to be okay. Yeah. She's like, but we're going to get her some special help. And we're like, you know, she, it, it's just you need idea. some counseling? I feel yeah. like it, yeah. <laughs> she just kept going. And we're, no. you know, kind of got in this moment of like, no, mm-hmm. we're really okay with that. It, they're going to struggle. Yeah. It happens. Um, so we have this concept that we're all exceptional. And you talk a little bit about, about what, what you were saying about there's a small percentage of us that are actually exceptional. Yeah. Uh, Mike and I both believe that exceptional and um, gifted is incredibly overused in our society. Kids are labeled with giftedness and uh, exceptionality when they're three and four and they've never really done anything for anybody else uh, or themselves. Um, and so I think labeling a kid and, and keeping uh, this over-affirmation kind of thought process going with a kid really creates a lot of problems for them um, because as they grow up, they uh, think that they're special, and when they think they're special and they find out that they're not special, which they all do, uh, and they're not exceptional and they're not gifted, uh, then they have to try to be somebody else to kind of live up to that expectation that they've been ingrained with 
growing up through uh, a process of over-affirmation. Um, we feel it's much more important to focus a child on what they're good at, uh, focus them on what they're not good at, and really reinforce this concept of being average. Mm -hmm. uh, last night in, in the talk on depression, I had everybody stand up and turn to the next person and say, I am average. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> okay? Nothing's wrong with being average. The question is, are you going to live and accept your averageness and then be effective in your life? And I know a lot more average people who are incredibly effective than exceptional people. And you can see it across you know, the news with celebrities and stuff. They're exceptional at this or whatever, but they're a mess inside because they don't have the right compass inside their brain. Our, our district supervisor for Foursquare shared at the conference uh, recently. And we were just, just there. And at the end of the conference, he gets up there. And it's like it's this drop-the-mic moment. If you guys have ever heard Dave Veach speak, which most of you haven't, he just drops things occasionally. And he just goes, hey, let's just be honest here. There's a room full of 1,000 pastors. Let's just be honest here, pastors. Most of you are meat and potatoes. Mm. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> A couple of you are exceptional, maybe two, but the rest of you are meat and potatoes. <laughs> but that's what he's talking about is that we are all average. You said this, there was a phrase you use, and I, I don't have it in my notes, and I left it, it's written down at home, but about, about if we oh, live when normal. Ex yeah, when exceptional becomes expected, then normal becomes defective. Mm. And I think that's the experience of many young people growing up. Uh, with the current pendulum swinging way over here mm -hmm. to you all have to be exceptional. You have to have something about you that's exceptional. Now, we're not saying that you're not unique. I mean, we're all unique. We're all created. Just read Psalm 139. Um, we are all created uniquely. We are made uh, in the image of God. We are created in Christ Jesus uh, and have certain things that have already been planned for us to do. But if we're focused on being exceptional, we're going to miss that whole picture as Christians and we're going to be focusing on the wrong things. Yeah, we spend a lot of time trying to be somebody we're not. Exactly. Instead of seeing that we are one in seven billion. Yep. That we are unique. We talked about this a little bit last week when you weren't here looking at the, the parable of the talents the, mm. and how you know God has overwhelmingly gifted each one of us. And there was something I said in the sermon that I had been wrestling with throughout the week, and, and it's something I've always avoided saying. I said that we are made for greatness, mm -hmm. but tempered that with, but we're not made for fame. Mm. And uh, there's this balance that we have to hold. And I wonder if you have some, some thoughts of how we can hold that balance of we are unique. We are made to have a great life. God intended something mm -hmm. wonderful for us. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we create this false self that causes us to not live that great life. We're mm -hmm. living somebody else's life, yep. pursuing you know, some sort of exceptional life that doesn't fit with that. And I think in the process kind of, looking for fame, mm -hmm. and Revelation talks about fame is actually God's, you know, we mm -hmm. cast down every golden ground at his feet, that's right. what it says. So can you talk about like, how we can live in that tension of a great life mm -hmm. without this, have, just being average? Yep. Well, I, like I said, many average, most people I know who are, who are uh, very effective in life are very average, and I think it, it really does boil down to, are we going to accept who we are as we have been created and trust that God will reveal to us the plans that he has for us? Or are we going to take that inside ourselves and try to do it all ourselves and create this person that we think everybody else wants to see? And really, it's not true. It's a false self. 
and what's fueled this, of course, is social media and um, kind of this, uh, this new digital generation that kind of everything is based on posting, likes, uh, how many followers. Uh, it's really created just a, an exponential comparison compared to even 20, 30 years ago. Um, and so the false self-development is really a treadmill. And you can, you know, start pretending to be somebody else just to get kind of back into that specialness feeling. But then you know it's really not you anyways. And then you find out in life that you're really not that special or exceptional or gifted or anything. And so now you've got to go to the next level of false self. And it's just this vicious cycle. And I think it leads to tremendous amounts of anxiety and a lot of depression as well. So when I was starting this, I had meant to say uh, to all the parents in this room that we want to create a space of grace. We've talked about this before. This, this church is a pocket of grace where you don't have to perform for anybody. You can be your great self, your one in seven billion individuality, and experience the love of God, and we're going to give that to you. Um, so that space of grace is so important because we live in a culture that is dominated by shame. Absolutely. And you spent a good deal talking about a culture of shame that we kind of swim in. It's, it's mm-hmm. like the soup in which we're carrots. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just stewing in it, and we live in it. And uh, as I was reading the book, one of the things I noticed you said, which was so great, is you said, we live in a culture of shame. And as a parent, you probably cannot avoid shaming your children. Mm-hmm. So our goal is to get to the end of our child, you know, leading our children um, into adulthood with as little shame upon them as possible. Right. Right. So can you talk a little bit more about shame and how we, um, how we put shame on and, – and to take that even out of the context of just children, how do we do that for one another? Mm. I mean, how might I do that to Eliza as a pastor? Eliza, you're the person that's just right there. So, mm-hmm. Or anybody else in this room. How might we shame one another in this culture as parents mm-hmm. and as, as believers? Mm-hmm. Well, shame is that feeling that we get um, – kind of a feeling of defectiveness because of a mistake or a failure that we've done. Maybe we've really done it, and sometimes it's just a, a perception of failure. And then we've, we take on this feeling of, of uh, defectiveness, and that's really the, the sense of shame. Um, and unfortunately, shame, and I'm not talking guilt, because I think guilt is a good thing. Um, I think shame is something that really, um, it overcorrelates what we have done with who we are. It takes that kid who hasn't cleaned up his room to your room is messy and goes to, you're a complete slob. Okay? Uh, it takes, um, you know, you can just think of many examples where how things are portrayed or said to somebody really is shaming versus just saying what the truth is. Your room is messy. Um, and so, unfortunately, um, a lot of things that parents do, prim- primarily talk too much to their kids, especially about their failures and their mistakes, creates more and more shame. And I would say it's really hard for a parent to talk more than 30 seconds about something their kid hasn't done correctly before shame gets into it. Okay? You, you just can't keep talking about things. And we actually spent some time on that yesterday about um, just, just keeping your mouth shut. Um, rather than continuing to pound and barrage your child with the negatives and their failures. Uh, that's, they know that. Your kid knows uh, when that happens. Because um, every time you remind them, every time you threaten them, every time you warn them, it's another reminder to them that I'm not living up to your expectations. So we really feel like parents need to 
to be very careful about how they say things to their kids. They need to be honest, truthful, and they need to tell their kids the truth with encouragement and in a loving fashion. Uh, but they shouldn't over-talk something or bring other extraneous issues into something that they're talking about. I think a lot of Christians uh, come at life with a lot of shame, some from their childhood, but just we just walk in it because we don't understand grace. And I think that we have this image of God, um, maybe even partly because we read some of the prophets. Mm-hmm. You know, we read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Joel, Habakkuk. And, you know, we hear this angry God who is a disciplinarian in this moment. But we miss the parts of that that say things like, I have drawn you with cords of loving kindness mm-hmm. and miss that idea of God pursuing us and drawing us. Mm-hmm. And so when we come at it from that perspective and read those prophets, then we suddenly see not a God who's shaming us, mm-hmm. but a God who's loving us and speaking truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that truth talking is absolutely important. Um, but so over-talking, as you can tell, is the thing that I struggle with. Hmm. Um, that surprises me. Does it? No. <laughs> oh, I, I was hopeful for a second. I thought maybe you didn't notice. No, no, you don't over-talk. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> Just you don't. ask no. any one of my three children <laughs> or my wife. Hmm. <laughs> um, so since it's a, a space of grace, I could just confess that, right? Um, that I overtalk, and what what comes to my mind is some Second um, Corinthians where Paul is talking about his weakness, um, and he says he says that God says to him, he's like, I take this away from me. I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. And God just says to him, not yeah, you're right. You suck. <laughs> no, he doesn't. No, say he that. doesn't say that. Paul might have said something like that, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. So. That it leads us to this third place. Um, you know, when we talk about shame, we talk about the cycles. So we either give up, mm-hmm. and we just, you know, if I am a broken and defective individual, I might as well just be broken and defective, mm-hmm. or I'm going to work really hard to prove that I'm not broken and defective. That's the positive side. But there's this third place, this middle place mm-hmm. of grace. Um, can you talk about like how we can draw one another toward the middle? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is, is we all need to accept from ourselves, most importantly, but even from others, that each one of us is uh, two sides of a coin. We've got some good things in us, and we've got not so good things in us. That's a result of the fall. We live in a sinful world, in a broken world. And so we are a combination of kind of good things and bad things, Okay. We actually need to accept ourselves and live in the middle because if we try to be all those good things and think of ourselves too highly, we're going to be in this positive shame cycle of trying to perform and be perfect and be deathly afraid of slipping into the middle because then we're going to experience shame. Likewise, people who live in a negative shame cycle um, really uh, are telling themselves a story that's really, you're a loser, you're ugly, you're unacceptable. And they can't even imagine uh, getting into the middle because it's going to just take too much work and it's just easier to stay here. But it's about being in the middle. And from a parenting standpoint, you probably have kids that you're thinking, oh my goodness, they're a really high performer, probably in a positive shame cycle. They need to understand that there's parts of them when they're really, you know, over here, they may be selfish. They may not be very generous. They may be uh, flippant or sarcastic or things that really aren't what you want in their character. 
And so if they are living in that place, as a parent, you need to say, you know, you're never as good as you think you are on your best days. And for kids on this side, you're never as bad as you are. You, you never are as bad as you think you are on your worst days. You need to come to the middle because when you live in the extremes here, you're going to have a lot of anxiety. You're going to have a lot of depression. And so that's why I brought that into the discussion yesterday. And that middle place is that space of, of grace where, yes. oh, you got to be. I still love you. Yes. Let's yeah. work a little harder. You know, <laughs> that's, that trying to wrestle with that. No, I know. That's exactly <laughs> it. No, 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 no. See, and that's how mm-hmm. I, I can easily spin my own mm-hmm. either high performance or give up cycle mm-hmm. right onto my own children or even the people that I'm leading. Sure. We can project a lot of ourselves on our yes. kids. And that's a really dangerous place to be. So that space of grace is so important um, as we walk with our kids when they fail and when they achieve, mm-hmm. that, that our homes and our churches, our, our coffee shops would be that space where we can really give each other the freedom to be average. Absolutely. Um, and yet, so one of the things, though, that causes a lot of shame is failure in our culture. And when, especially, it doesn't matter which side we're on. If we're on the high mm-hmm. performance side and we fail, well, we've been caught. We found out we're an imposter. And yes. when we're on the low, the low side, well, of course, that's all I was ever going to do. And right. so we just be buried under it. And yet, failure can teach us a lot. And so one of the concepts you brought up was learning and anti-learning, which is like mm-hmm. matter and antimatter. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, antimatter runs spaceships, and I don't mm-hmm. know. It's like quantum physics or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think there's some people in here that understand what you understand, just said, yeah. but I don't know. Um, so anti-learning and learning is something that's really important for us to give each other shame, or not shame, to give each other <laughs> grace, to walk in grace. Can you talk more about learning and anti-learning? Yeah, Mike and I believe that there's a healthy way for kids to learn as they grow up, and there's an unhealthy way for kids to learn. And the two healthy ways to learn is if they make a good decision about something and the outcome is good. Okay, that's called positive reinforcement. That is something that the kid studies for their fourth grade math test, and they actually do very well. Not perfect, but very well, uh, and very acceptable, and maybe even above average. Um, So that is a very healthy way to learn. Likewise, if you make a bad decision about something, and you have a bad outcome, that's a healthy way to learn. Because you say, it's not worth the cost to make that bad decision anymore. Uh, unhealthy learning is kind of the other two things where you make a bad decision, like I'm going to go party with my friends and drive my car home, and the outcome is I drank with my friends, got totally wasted, and I drove home and didn't get in an accident. That's a bad decision with actually a good outcome. You didn't die or kill somebody else. All right? But you're not learning from that at all. You're going, I can do that again, and then I can do that again. And it can be a whole number of things like that. Um, so we really want to make sure as we're watching our kids grow up, if they're making good decisions and the outcome is good, we want to reinforce that. We want to say, see, that's awesome. You studied really hard. I really appreciate your effort. And the grade reflects that. I mean, you don't have to say any more than that or throw confetti. You just say what it is. Or likewise, if a kid makes a bad decision, and um, here, here's an example, four-year-old picky eater. Um, I, I said this yesterday, in our house, our kids grew up giving, you know, we gave them two things for dinner, take it or leave it. And that was it, take it or leave it. Um, kids who are rescued with food when they whine about what they don't want to eat, uh, 
have made a bad decision and they get a good outcome with macaroni and cheese and hot dogs, right? That is not a good outcome. Well, well it was when I was a kid. No. And, and the issue here is, is when they make a bad decision about complaining about what you just uh, made uh, for them to eat, like your roast beef and your mashed potatoes and your broccoli, and they whine about it and complain and refuse to eat it, don't do anything. What is the outcome you want here? Hunger. Exactly. Don't feed them anything. And they go to bed hungry. You don't ha- it's no work for you. It's just like, well, that's what's for dinner. Sorry. And then they, they decide not to eat and they go to bed hungry. The next night, the same thing happens. Okay, go ahead. And after a few experiences of hunger as the bad outcome, they go, I don't, I don't think I want to do this. I'll try this food. So that's, that's kind of a simplified example. No, it's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it just had me thinking about you know, leading people, pastoring, and even you know, church and, and our relationship with God. Mm. We can be picky eaters. You sure. Know, picky about what kind of sermon we get. I really, yep. I prefer Thai food or I prefer this. And the pastor's mm-hmm. meat and potatoes, so I go across town. Yep. I'm not sure how that works out, but it really got me thinking about that. And yeah. I was like, I'm like, so basically what you just told me to do was when people say, you're not feeding me, they say, well, you're not eating. Oh. <laughs> Is that true? Well, just feed them the right food. Oh, I do. I know you do. Feed yeah. them Jesus. Anyway. Uh, I just totally distracted myself with that. It was like a squirrel. Well, you know, I think it's, it's a little digress, uh, digression here or tangent. Um, we go to a church in, in inner city Tucson that's primarily tw- 18 to 35-year-olds. My wife and I were really old there, but we love it. There's just tons of energy, and I know there's lots of students from, from college here. Um, but what's amazing to me is the, is the devotion and the faith of these young people has just been an inspiration for my wife and I, but it's because the pastor talks about Jesus. He talks about the gospel. He talks about the good news, and it, it's a thriving, growing church because the message is what it is. You don't have to make up a message of Christianity. You just have to give them the gospel, and those who are here and ready to hear it will hear it, and it will thrive in their lives. And I think that's really important for us to remember that really it's Jesus that's the author and perfecter of our faith. So when we mm-hmm. talk about being life-ready believers, not just life-ready kids, but mm-hmm. life-ready believers, like that's what we want to send. We want to send, I, okay, mm-hmm. my, our young adults typically send over, sit in this section. You guys are leaving, okay? I just know you are. You're leaving. Elijah's like excited. He's like, I'm ready to go now. Um, and then everybody else, you guys are leaving too, Okay. Everybody in this room is leaving. You will leave with a moving van or in a box. Someday, everybody is leaving. That's true. My boss told me that. Dave wow. Beach, same guy. In a box. In a box. He said, everybody's leaving urn. your church or an urn. It could be an urn. It could be an urn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's true. You're, you're all giggling uncomfortably because you're like, he just presented our mortality. But this is the truth. <laughs> so when Heidi and I sit down and talk and we dream and we're like, what do we want to send out? You know, whether it's in a box or in a moving van, mm. we want to send out life-ready Christians. Yep. I love the term life-ready. Like, you're mm-hmm. ready to handle what life hands you with your faith um, because Jesus is the author and perfecter mm-hmm. of that faith. And as we walk through our learning and our anti-learning, when we experience grace and we experience shame and we experience guilt and in all those things, Jesus is the one who has authored that in mm-hmm. us and is perfecting that in us, and we walk in it, even though consequences stink. Yep. 
Um, you Isn't mentioned that interesting? Okay. Uh, this brings up a kind of thing that I, um, I believe. Even our faith is God's. It's not ours. He has given us the gift of faith. It's not something that we have mustered up inside of us. And I, I just, when, when you start thinking about that, you're like, whoa. Yeah. It, it just tells you that, you know, who you belong to. Yeah, and that's why we can ask for more. That's right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm lacking faith. Give me some. Um, where was I going to go? I had this, like, oh, connection. Here it is. So you talked about the four quadrants of, mm-hmm. of learning and anti-learning, and this will, I think, maybe begin to lead us into something else. But um, you talked about three of them, really, where we have a good, you know, a good action and a good outcome, and we have a bad action and a bad outcome. Those two are good. Mm-hmm. And when we do something bad and have a good outcome, that's going to mess things up. Right. But there's the fourth, which can actually also be good, which is we have a good action and a bad outcome mm-hmm. because we tried and we failed or, or life happened or whatever happened. And in that, we learn something that uh, Heidi and I are, are wrestling with is this idea of resilience. Mm. And uh, resilience is really important, I think, as a part of the checklist for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about resilience? Yeah, resilience is kind of a in vogue word right now. And I just dropped this on you, I know, too. I know, I know not <laughs> in the notes. I'm like, I've been waiting to find yeah. something to stump you with. Well, y- you can stump me with a lot of stuff. But resilience, I think, is, is that, that characteristic that is built. It's not necessarily inborn. I don't believe it is. I think some kids grow up becoming resilient faster than others. And you probably know some adults in your life who've never developed resilience to any significant degree. But it really is uh, something that happens when kids uh, are allowed to fail and allowed to get themselves up and try again. And here again kind of comes in this whole, o- the, the whole issue of overparenting. Many kids who don't develop resilience, it's because they have been rescued their entire lives from every hardship that they can imagine. Okay, in fact, I talk about helicopter parents and snowplow parents. Helicopter parents are those who their kid starts to experience a life hardship and they swoop in and fix it, okay? Uh, the the snowplow parents are the, are the kids that the parents plow the road so they even never experience or even are aware that there's hardship in the world. And those kids, uh, both sets of those kids grow up without really any resilience because they expect to be bailed out. They expect to have somebody come alongside them and rescue the situation, and they've never had to solve the problem on their own because they've never been given the opportunity. And so that's a real danger with resilience is, is getting too involved. We need to let our kids fail. We need to let them figure out. I told the story of my son hitting a baseball through our neighbor's picture window, um, wondering, how is this going to turn out? Okay, How is he going to handle this? I'm not going to step in right away. I'm going to just watch and see. There's a joy to that for a parent to just kind of wait and see what's going to happen. And it all ended up fine, and he learned a great lesson about going and feeling bad about something and apologizing and putting a plan together for restitution. And it was a great life experience for him at eight. Um, And it could have been a disaster had we stepped in. And I think this is one of those other places where we have this false idea of God. Mm -hmm. You know, we think that God is being silent and ignoring us in the midst of our trials when Mm. things don't turn out and yet god is maybe doing allowing something to happen in us Mm -hmm. that couldn't be done any other way and giving us uh, the space and grace to walk through these life circumstances in his power and in his grace 
and to discover something and to build resilience in our faith and in life. Yep. And the hard part about this, this is why I would say resilience is a retrospective acknowledgement. As you're going through things, you don't necessarily experience that. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You, you still are like, I don't know what's going to happen here. But the thing you can count on is that God is with you along this whole path. And that it's, for me, most of the time it's been in retrospect that I went, oh my goodness, he's been in this whole picture intimately for the last 18 months. I didn't feel like it many times, but he's, with it. he's there and it, he just kind of made it all happen. Not that everything always turns out well, but some things just happen. But I think that, that trust factor is the key here. Yeah. So the good news in that is that God is with you even when it doesn't feel like doesn't he is. doesn't feel like it, exactly. And uh, he's walking alongside of you. So I, I don't know if we, I think we've got time for one more. And what we've talked about here is starting into something called comparison culture. Um, but I'm wondering if you can shape that even more. Uh, because I think the thing that parents and young adults alike will really benefit from is hearing about uh, your take on the bane of your life, uh, social media mm-hmm. and technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is wrapped up in this comparison culture stuff. Absolutely. So would you just kind of speak to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the comparison culture in the Western area of the world, like we're in, uh, has been there forever. We used to call it the American dream. Nothing wrong with the American dream, but it really does set a lot of people up to go down a path of comparison, which is unfortunate. Um, but the the problem today, especially with the, the issue of social media, is it's just exponentially fueled me comparing myself to you, you comparing yourself to them. Everything we see on social media, not everything, but much of what we see on social media is the false self of that person. And it's, to me, very depressing to go on, on Facebook, for example, and, and see all, and I typically would need to go on my wife's Facebook because I don't have that many friends because uh, I just don't. I'm not a big Facebook. I'll but friend any, you. W- will you? Yeah, I'll okay. friend you. All right. I'll do it right now. Should I? No, no, no. <laughs> Should I accept it? Yeah. Uh, um, but, but I, for example, if my wife is scrolling through Facebook, it's, she's got, 300 friends, and a lot of them are back in Minnesota, and they're having grandchildren, and, you know, there's all these pictures of vacations and just these perfect family portraits, and we know these people, and it's not that way, okay? It's just not, and it, it sets us up for comparison, uh, kind of comparing the inside of our house to the outside of theirs, which is a really dangerous place to go, because everybody has some mess in their life. It's just the way it is, and Facebook is trying to cover that up. It's trying to bury that below the surface so that nobody sees that part of your life. And I think it's really created a problem of connection. We're connected with many more people, but so superficial. It's not that deep connection that um, I kind of remember when I was first an adult in my 20s and 30s. Kind of dates me, doesn't it? But uh, I just think social media is just a a great fertile ground for depression and anxiety and comparison and feeling unworthy and unhappy uh, and like you're not measuring up. So I, I caution my teen- teenager patients to, to get off Facebook if they have depression or anxiety. Yeah, you said that yesterday. Uh, in fact, somebody told me afterward, they were like in tears, I'm going home and calling my daughter right now and telling her 
that she needs to take a three-week break from Facebook. <laughs> and this was so yeah. his recommendation is any teen who has uh, a, a diagnosis with anxiety or depression, yeah. before you send them to medication or to a doctor even, another mm-hmm. doctor, you're the or doctor, psychologist, psychologist yeah. uh, to take a three-week break from social media mm-hmm. and to do something nice for somebody. Yes. Two assignments, two homework. Completely get off social media and do one thing for one person that's nice that will make their life better once a day. That's it. And these teenage kids who come in with depression and anxiety, they come back in three or four weeks and they're like a completely different person. The parents are in tears. They say, I got my daughter back. It's like, mm-hmm, yeah. Her depression was really a consequence of her spending too much time on social media and comparing her horrible life to everybody's perfect life. And we all know that that's not even true. Okay? I'm always honest on Facebook, so... It's not really a problem okay. for me because <laughs> my life is really amazing. Um, I'm exceptional. Exceptionally average. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, thank you. Touche. Touche, touche. So he, like, basically rambled through all the things I have on here. Uh, yeah, who am I? Where am I going? I think those are all questions. Why am I here? We get so mixed up, not like me not right now. I mean all of us say this. Um, I think one of the things we hear from young adults uh, frequently over the years is like, I'm afraid I'm going to miss my life purpose. Mm -hmm. And social media really does cause that some of that anxiety because we look at everybody else living out their life purpose. You know, these beautiful children, these great vacations, this wonderful Mm -hmm. job. Um, And so we use Facebook as a place to compare ourselves and to see. Um, and, and we, it's just, it's, it's endemic yeah. and we get lost in that. And so we miss that unique self, the yeah. one in 7 billion that God's created us to be. Yeah. It's kind of a sick way of thinking. Um, I really think social media has created a, um, worldwide codependency. We are codependent on other people telling us how great we are. We're codependent on other people liking our post. We're codependent on other people, um, saying you're just doing so well. And it's like that. That's really sick, you know. Another thing my boss told me is that uh, pastors aren't sinless. We just take the people with the sin of pride and the need to have their ego struck and stroked and stick them up on stage. Oh. <laughs> and so he, he's a great guy, isn't he? He's yeah, always he like, is. yeah, I'm bringing brutally us down. honest, brutally yeah. honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know why I had to say that. <laughs> so I, we're kind of at the end of our time, and I guess what I would want is to open up to anything that you feel that was important that you wanted mm-hmm. to say to us. Um, that was just in your heart that you haven't had a chance to say or um, that you feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in this moment because that happens, yeah. um, that you want to say to us or even me if, you know, if it's nice. Yeah. And, uh, and then would you just You're pray? You're so above average. Thanks. Would you just pray? <laughs> just, it's yeah. not true. Yeah. Would you just pray for us and uh, just pray a blessing over us Great. this morning? Yeah. Last week I was thinking about how to end this because uh, Jamie had sent me this and it kind of implied that I'd maybe have the last word here. And, uh, Susan and I, <laughs> Susan and I, um, you know, as our kids have grown up, we've been to hundreds of graduation parties and for college and for for high school and things like that. And we always feel it's important to to leave that young person because so many of them we know really really well through our kids, leave them with a blessing that um, is kind of a little bit out of the ordinary from a blessing standpoint. And I. I brought this. We include this in all of the kids' cards and their gifts and stuff like that when they graduate. And I'd like to just read that to end. Is that okay? Can I have it when you're done? Yes, you can. Okay. Okay. So um, this is what we, we hope they can take with them as they 
journey into the next stage of their life. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. Amen. Amen. Man, that, that just really fits, uh, and it brings me to, and I've used this, actually. You have? Yeah, I was like, I know this one. Yeah. Um, we're going to close by singing the ancient hymn, the doxology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because uh, we'd like to close with a song and it says praise God from whom all blessings, blessings flow and this is a list of blessings that we be blessed with discomfort mm-hmm. blessed with injustice and anger and uh, these things so that we may be a life ready believer yeah. in Christ yeah. and so we say thank you Jesus mm-hmm. for giving us those things rather than why yeah exactly. so let's do that can we do that we just sing that together and, and, and say thank you Jesus for what he's given us mm-hmm. and that he's giving us Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So as Jesus is blessing you with all of these things in your life, whether you are single, whether you are a kid or an adult, know that in the midst of it, he desperately and deeply loves you. And Tim, Jesus loves you desperately and deeply. And so do Heidi and I. <laughs> yeah. Go in the grace of our Lord this morning. Tim's going to be on the backspace, and uh, he's got books back there. That's great for anybody, and our T-shirts are back there. You can check out the books. Tim is an autographer, so you can get an autograph. And he won't even charge you for it. 